Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. The Apostle Paul, a man in a dilemma here. The Bible says in verse number six, but when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee of the hope and resurrection of the dead. I am called in question. And when he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say, there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. And there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees' part arose and strove, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel hath spoken to him, let us not fight against God. And when there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him by force from among them and to bring him into the castle. Amen. Tonight, I would like to uh, head this lesson here this evening, Crisis Averted. Uh, I think we've all said that at one time or another in plain terms, something that someone thought was really a crisis, and they helped you out. Oh, Crisis Averted. Well, there's about three crises. Uh, crises, if we will, that are in the scriptures here that were averted. One was with Paul with the Sanhedrin court. Another was Paul with himself, the Lord intervening. And then there was the Apostle Paul that his nephew overheard something, got the chief captain to go to bat for him. Amen. And so tonight, I want to consider crisis averted. Lord Jesus, I come to you here this evening. God, I'm thankful, Lord Jesus, for those gathered together, Lord, in this place tonight. We pray, O oh Lord, that you're able to touch every heart, mind, and soul, Lord, as we give, Lord, of our time, God, and of our, Lord, minds and hearts to you. God, let us be touched afresh, Lord Jesus, God, by your word. God, for we know they are the words of life, words to live by, words to die by. And we accept them, so in the lovely name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen and amen. The church say amen. Amen. Shake somebody's hand before you're seated. Introduce yourself if you don't know them. Amen. Introduce yourself to a guest tonight. Amen. That may be here that you do not know. Amen. Make them feel welcome. Amen. Crisis averted. So last week we looked at the subject matter of good conscience. And so Paul has already made his good conscience spill in the first five verses of Acts 23. He has already had somebody that was in the band of the high priest smote him on the mouth. He has already retaliated with words such as you whited wall that we thought was such just a great alternative to other things that a person could say. You whited wall uh, here in the scripture. He has learned that Ananias, the high priest that he has spoken uh, roughly against is indeed the high priest, something that he was not aware of. And as a result of coming to that knowledge, he admits that he was wrong in dishonoring the office of the high priesthood. And so he stands before the Sanhedrin, what could be a rather intimidating body of people, of Jews, of Sadducees and Pharisees, scribes, high priests, relatives, and former high priests. And we must understand as he stands before the Sanhedrin that 
there are probably several of them that already have some biased opinions about Paul. They have already formulated their uh, thoughts concerning him and what he has done and what he teaches and propagates. And so Paul really didn't start off on the best of footing. Uh, he started off uh, with his opening words that didn't seem to be accepted very well. He's already spoke words against the high priest, and that never goes well among the Sanhedrin court. And so he's probably thinking in his mind, if I can just, you know, sometimes in Scripture you just need to think how humanity thinks because all these people we talk about, guess what? They're part of this thing called humanity. And so he's probably thinking, is there anything, is there anything really that I can say to change what's happening right now in this moment? I mean, what, what more could I do? It's already opened quite bad. I've already spoken against the high priest. There's probably not anything that I can add to this conversation that can somehow change this moment and then the light bulb goes off. Unless I can divide and conquer. And he knows that in this Sanhedrin, there's part that's Sadducees. There's part that's Pharisees. And so with his next statement, he makes a decision I'm going to divide the Sanhedrin court. I'm going to divide the Sanhedrin house with my next statement. And so he bellows forth, not thinking there's anything else he could say to help the matter out. So if I can't help my matter out, I'll get them in a ruckus among each other. And he says, brethren, men, he says, I am a Pharisee. And I have a heritage, if you will, of Phariseeism. And then he goes a step further and he says basically what he is doing, he's taking all the accusations that's been against him and he's linking them to, boys, this is the real issue. The real question here today is the hope and the resurrection of the dead. Son, you'd have thought he just put an atomic bomb in the Sanhedrin court because the Pharisees, one group of people, they believe in the resurrection of the dead. They believe in angels. They believe uh, uh, in a spirit. Amen. But the Sadducees did not believe any of those things. They did not believe in a resurrection of the dead or angels or a spirit. So Paul saying, I am a Pharisee, which in his life he had been a Pharisee, a, a keeper, if you will, to the, to the dotting of the I and the crossing of the T of the law. But whenever he said that, he automatically got a good portion, half, might you say, of the Sanhedrin and says, well, he's a Pharisee. That's what we are. And then they said, well, we believe in angels and we believe in the resurrection of the dead. And here's the sex says, well, we don't believe in that. And all of a sudden, Paul just turned the tables when the issue was supposed to be about, well, it was the resurrection and those matters, but about him blatantly going against all of these things of the law, he turned it to be some type of matter that was among themselves. And the Bible says there arose a dissension among the Sanhedrin court. He is a clever guy. I like him. He made dissension among the Sanhedrin court. And the Bible says as time went on, as they probably discussed, you call it discussion, you want to call it an argument, whatever you want to call it, as they bickered and fought back and forth about whether there's a resurrection of the dead or whether there's angels, amen, Paul's just sitting there probably with a smile on his face as they're going at it. Nobody's questioning him, saying anything to him. They're just having at it. The Bible says it escalates to a great dissension. Man, it really gets in deep. And at this point, the scribes and the Pharisees didn't want to come against Paul, we read in Scripture, because he said he's a Pharisee. They don't want to come against Paul. And they're saying, hey, boys, if on his way to Damascus, whenever he was converted, if it was an angel or if it was a spirit that spoke to him, we better keep our mouth shut lest we be speaking against God. 
We, 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 we don't want to set ourselves against God, guys, because that's the very one we're trying to represent. That's the very one that we're trying to go to defense for. So we don't want to be against God. And so the lesson here in just the formative verses of my scripture reading here tonight is simply this. And it's the same lesson that has been learned in other passages of scripture. Amen. Although we're learning it by a very peculiar way. And that is this. It's the words that Jesus even said. A house divided against itself shall not stand. That was in essence the strategy that Paul was using right here with the Sanhedrin. And the thing about this strategy, he, wasn't, he was using it toward his enemies. But here's something that we need to be aware of tonight. It can be used against you, in your home, in your family, in your church. To pit one side against the other side. Again, it was Jesus who said in Mark 3, a house divided against itself shall not sin. That's the reason why Paul knew it worked so well. That's the reason why he went headed out on this adventure. He knew it worked because Jesus said it would work. And so the scribes had come. The scribes had come in Mark 3. In Mark 3, the scribes have come suggesting that Jesus had Bezelzebub, which was the prince of devils. And they accused Jesus having the prince of devils or being possessed with the prince of devils. And by virtue of having the prince of devils, being able to cast out devils. And so Jesus really took them to the table. He reframed the question a little bit so that they would really think about what they were saying, really consider what they were saying. And he said, boys, how can Satan cast out Satan? How can Satan cast out Satan? Amen. And then he makes two statements in the same context. They're very similar. One's about the kingdom. And another is about a house where he says in both instances, a kingdom or a house that is divided cannot stand. He says, does that really, really make sense that one could cast out another? No, no, not at all. Because if it's a divided house or if it's a divided kingdom, it falls already. It cannot stand. Not only that, we see this idea of a house divided or kingdom divided not standing all the way back in the book of beginnings in Genesis 11 where the Bible says those of the early society who were making from Nimrod the first kingdom, they decided that they were going to erect there at Babel, the land of Shinar, a very great tower that would reach even unto the heavens. It was very lofty. They had a lot of goals that if we can get this tower to reach to the heavens, we won't have to worry about being scattered. We won't have to worry about being dispersed. We'll be able to stay right here in the land of Shinar. And so they had very, very lofty goals. But they could not succeed in their goals. They could not succeed in their goals without the unison of the language. At that point in time, the Bible tells us that all the people of the known land, amen, had the same language. And God from heaven, looking upon this structure that they had erected to the heavens, looking that they had some lofty goals and aspirations, by the way, that were in contrast to what he wanted. He wanted them to disperse. He wanted them to be fruitful and multiply and scatter upon the earth. But say, no, we're going to stay right here. Because of the unification or their single language, they, he said, these are the words of God. He says, now, he says, now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. 
He says, since they have the same mind toward this, they have the same language, they're working with one another. Because of this unison, there's nothing that they won't be able to do. And for the purpose of fulfilling his purpose for them, scattering them, them multiplying. The Bible says that God came down and used that very principle that a house divided cannot stand. The Bible says he confused their language so that now one man could not communicate with another man clearly. He could not, it was as though they were speaking two different languages. He divided their languages. And as a result, the Bible says, the people then divide and they're scattered all across the earth because if there is division, it will not stand. Paul used it, but what I want you to understand tonight, it can be used against you. It can be used against us, and it's proven true right here in Acts 23 among the Sanhedrin. It's true right here among the Sanhedrin, and it can be at different times in scriptures we see glimpses of it that it has been true among the church. Here's the thing about that principle. A house divided against itself shall not stand. That's not a saved principle or an unsaved principle. It doesn't matter what spectrum of life you're in, saved, unsaved, this, that, or whatever. Put whatever label you want on it. It works every time. In the church and outside of the church, if you can get the house divided, it will not stand. No wonder then that the Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the church at Ephesus, said to them that they needed to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why are you saying that, Paul? Because Paul understood the power of division wherever it landed. Wherever it landed. When he was writing to the church at Corinth, he told them, this is what he told them. He said, I heard that there were divisions among you. Writing to a church. 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen. 18, he says, first of all, when you come together in the church, he says, I hear that there be divisions among you. And I partly believe it. <laughs> now, there's almost a little touch of, keep that up there. There's almost a little touch of irony here because he says when you come together, he says you're divided. That's, I mean, start to wrap your mind around the words. When you come together, you're divided. When you come together, you're divided. Because it is possible to be together and yet divided. The Sanhedrin, those 70 members, 71, including the high priest, they were together together in this fort. Antonio, they were gathered together there, but they were divided. I can give you, everybody, anybody ever just waited in a waiting room at a hospital? What's one of the activities that they have there for you whenever you're waiting at a hospital? It's something that you put together, a puzzle. You're never going to like puzzles in a hospital waiting room. And they're probably not used very often, but sometimes I've seen them and I've I've kind of toyed with the idea myself a few times. But the thing is this, I can give you a box with a puzzle in it. All the pieces are together in the box. But they're still very much so divided. Amen? If I'd say like this, all the components, sometimes there's the missing piece, but all the components are in the box. The recipe for the end result is in the box. But it's not, it's separated. It's divided. You see what, how cruel division is? Is this, you can have all the components that are necessary for the final picture. But if it's not together, if it's not 
If it's not put together, linked joint to joint, arm to arm, where there's no gaps, no schisms, where there's no division, it doesn't matter how you take, you take milk and you take eggs and you take everything you need for a cake and set it on your counter and group it together over there and it's never going to become a cake. But somebody's got to remove the division. You got to mix the eggs with the milk and you got to somehow, you got to somehow blur the lines where one starts and another ends. My God, in the church of the living God, in order to get to the final result, there can't be no division among us. Where the elbow ends, the forearm's got to start. There's got to. Yes. Hallelujah. It's more than just coming together. We got to be together in this place. And so Paul's prescription against division was this in 1 Corinthians 1.10. So he's speaking to the church, same church. He said, I hear there be divisions among you. And I partly believe it. He had reason why. But here's his prescription against divisions. He says, now, 1 Corinthians 1.10, now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, look at it now, that ye all speak the same thing. And that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Paul says, that's my prescription against division. And so Paul, as he's standing here before the Sanhedrin, and he threw out that little, threw out that little tidbit for them to nibble at, he didn't need to worry he didn't need to worry about them fighting him because all he had to do was expose their division that was among them. They started fighting each other. And once again, the Bible says the chief captain, I, you know, I'm starting to feel sorry for this guy in reality. <laughs> this Roman chief, I'm starting to feel sorry for him. He has to come down there among the crowd because he's afraid that Paul's going to be pulled in pieces by them. That's what the scripture really says. Afraid he's going to be pulled in pieces by them. So he goes down there. And for yet another time, <laughs> it's not the Jews that's rescuing Paul, but it's a Roman soldier that's going in among them. And they're rescuing Paul from this heated crowd, lest something would happen to him. Because here's what the Roman soldier knew. If something happens to Paul, something wrongfully happens to him, he being a Roman citizen, he said, and that happens on my watch, he says, do you know who's accountable for the wrongful deed done against Paul being a Roman citizen? Me. And so in modern day terms, he's like this. It's not happening on my watch. No, no, he's not going to die on my watch. Because the man could even lose his life. There's something wrong had happened to Paul being a Roman citizen. Now look at verse number 11 of Acts 23. Verse number 11. So this is after all this commotion that was stirred up with division <laughs> verse 11 says and the night following so what we just spoke about was the first crisis that was averted by Paul's clever means this is the second crisis that is averted right here just snuggled right here in verse number 11 that's the first of it and the end of it right here and the night following the Lord stood by him speaking of Paul and said be of good cheer, Paul. For as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, 
so must thou bear witness also at Rome. We've already seen another place in the scripture a few chapters back that since Paul's conversion, since his conversion, there have been a few times that in your Bible, if you, if you have a red letter edition Bible and Jesus' words are in red and you start at chapter 23 of Acts and start to look backwards, you'll see a few times where the words of Jesus pop up, but it is few from Acts 9 to Acts 23, a few times that his words come. But when you do see them, when you do see Jesus speaking into Paul's life from the point of his conversion till now, several years, several years into his life living for the Lord, when you do see them, those words that are spoken are so very timely. Those words that are spoken are many times instructional, if not also encouraging to Paul in his Christian journey. As I said, the last time we seen these words, and I'm not talking about whenever in chapter 22, Paul was relating his own conversion story. I'm not counting those because he's just repeating the story that's already been told. So Jesus' words are just coming up as a result of him telling a story that's already happened back in Acts 9. But the last time we see the words in red, if you have such a Bible, are in chapter number 18, verses 9 and 10 of that chapter. And it's there that Paul is in the city of Corinth. Amen. He normally did not stay at places very long but he has stayed at Corinth for some time now and if you'll remember the spirit of the Lord spoke to Paul and basically told Paul this to not be afraid he was allaying Paul's fears and he was also instructing Paul to go ahead keep preaching the message keep preaching the gospel and he was telling him why he should go on and do those things and there were three things if you remember number one he says Paul you can go on and do this because I'm going to be with you and number two there's none that's going to hurt you and number three, there I have much people in this city. You remember that? I have much people in this city, in the city of Corinth, to be reached. And so those words were very timely for the Apostle Paul. They were words of encouragement to him because they came, unbeknown to Paul, they came right before there would be a Jewish insurrection against Paul. Amen. When he could have lost his life, but nothing materialized during that time. Amen. Nothing materialized against him because he could, even in that moment, although he was being attacked, just lean on the fact Christ said that none would hurt me. So although it looks like doom and despair, he says, I already have a word from the Lord. I've been already encouraged by God that nothing is going to hurt me. But what happens in these Christian lives? After every mountain, there's a valley. I don't know how many times you straddle mountain peak to mountain peak. Most of my life is I got to go through the valley in order to get to the next mountain. And so, Brother Malone, if I can share with Paul being a part of humanity again, and if I can think or speak perhaps what he could have been feeling in that moment, in this moment of contriving something where they could fight against himself, you know, to give a little bit more time, you know, for the trial, everything that he'd been through, incarcerated now, been to Jerusalem, incarcerated, all these things, I can tell you maybe what Paul could have been thinking. And that was this. I know, I know when I came to Jerusalem, before I ever got here, that people were often saying that the Spirit was saying that bonds and affliction 
waited me here. I knew there was the possibility I would be imprisoned whenever I came here. And here I am now, imprisoned. You know what? Sitting there, huh? Just waiting, the waiting game by himself. You know what? Maybe I shouldn't have come to Jerusalem in the first place. Huh? How many times have you ever doubted a decision you ever made? When the end result didn't turn out the way that you thought it was going to turn out, and you sat there and thought, you know, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Maybe I shouldn't have come to Jerusalem anyway. You know, I'm supposed to be spreading the gospel and the word, and I haven't been able to go to any synagogues because I've been in prison. That would have been my first route, member of the Jewish synagogue. I'd hit that up. I haven't been able to do that because I've been in prison. I've not done much evangelizing here in the city. So what good am I really? Huh? What good am I? I, I'm here in Jerusalem, yeah, but, but I'm being convicted here in Jerusalem. And this is not where I wanted life to be right now. This is not where I wanted to stop. I had plans to go to Rome. I had plans to go even to Spain. I guess all of that's just a big pipe dream now. I guess I, sh- I should have never told anybody about those aspirations because I'm never going to get there. Should have shared with nobody that dream because I'm stuck in Jerusalem. I'll probably never make it there now. I wonder wonder what type of disappointment I've been to some of my other disciples and friends that I told them what my goals and aspirations were. And they see me now in a jail and they see me in prison. I I wonder what good that is doing in all of that. And in that moment, the Spirit of the Lord stood by him that night and begins to reassure Paul at the exact moment that Paul needed reassured. Paul didn't need to be told that he was invincible because he's not and none of us are. He didn't need to be told you're not going to have to worry about having ever another bad day in your life because listen, we're all going to have bad days. He didn't need to hear you don't have to worry about ever being disappointed again because the fact of the matter there would be another day he would be disappointed. But whenever the Lord came down he spoke where the apostle Paul was and he said be of good cheer. If I'm saying modern day language the spirit of the Lord was saying hey Paul it's going to be all right. You don't tell somebody be of good cheer if they're not down and out, if they're not a little depressed and disappointed, if they're not a little overwhelmed, but God shows up in the midst of his turmoil and he says, Paul, be of good cheer. Everything's gonna be all right. I feel in the Holy Ghost even today, there might be some people saying in the sound of my voice tonight, you need a voice of heaven to step down in the middle of your circumstance and reassure you everything is going to be all right. Yes. Hallelujah. Everything's going to be all right. Uh-uh. Look at it a little further. (laughs) Paul, you questioning questioning your ministry in Jerusalem because you're incarcerated? You're questioning your ministry there that perhaps it's been in vain because you've been in prison and on trial, it seems, and in bonds at times since you've been here? (laughs) He says, it's not been useless. He says, but it has been different. For that matter, Paul, because of you being where you are right now, you've had the opportunity to speak to people 
that you may not have otherwise spoken to had it not been for being incarcerated. Someone say amen. Not only that, Paul. So you're thinking where you're at right now has been useful. But I'm telling you, it's been useful. It's just been different from what has happened before. I'm telling somebody here tonight that where you are, what it seems like you're going through, the trouble it seems like that you're facing, you might think, my goodness, what good is all of this to me or anybody else? But God has stationed you in a position that your influence might be different, but it's not useless. Your different might be outside of the norm than your normal fare, but it's not useless. And Yes! I feel the preacher of the almighty God in this place tonight. Not only did he say that, he said, furthermore, Paul, your ministry is not over. Hmm. It's not over. He said, you've testified of me in Jerusalem. I know you didn't feel like that was you testifying. He said, but you did what needed to be done while you've been incarcerated. He said, you've testified of me in Jerusalem. And Paul so must, everybody say must, so must you bear witness also at Rome. Wait a minute. A few moments ago, he had been maybe playing with the idea, this is where I'm at, stuck in Jerusalem. I'm never going to reach Rome. I'm never going to reach Spain. All of a sudden, the Spirit of the Lord shows up and says, hey, this is where you are right now. But all the future things that you had planned, they're not all sliding off the table either. Hmm. He said, your ministry is not over. You must. The, 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 the translation of that Greek word must is this. It is necessary. It is necessary that you bear witness in Rome. Paul may have doubted it would happen, but the Lord was telling him it must happen. Paul was saying, I don't know. God was saying, I know. <laughs> I know. It must happen, and therefore it will happen. So here is a perk. Here is a perk, Paul. We're going to make sure you get to Rome. He said, but the bill's going to be on the Romans. We're going to make you get there, but you're not going to have to spend a penny for it. You're not going to be out anything. We're putting the bill on the Romans. Not only that, we're going to make them escort you there. <laughs> we're going to make them escort you there. It's going to be on their dime. I like that. Man, I like a future that's on somebody else's dime. For that matter, I like a future that's on the dime of my adversary. <laughs> the Bible says this. This was the attitude. This is the spirit. This is the, 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 the thinking, the frame of mind of the Apostle Paul in his life. Of 1 Corinthians 9 and 16. He says, for though I preach the gospel, he said, I have nothing to glory of. He said, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel, that was the attitude of Paul. Man, he, 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 he had to. He was compelled. Necessity was laid upon him. He had to preach the gospel. He had to preach the gospel. So you could only understand then through that lens, if he thought he was incarcerated, was it going to be able to spread the word? How impactful that was for him. I, I must, woe is me, if I, necessity's laid upon me. I must preach the gospel. You must understand then. You must understand the fire of hope 
that was kindled in Paul's spirit whenever God came down and told him, listen, because of necessity, I know you've oftentimes felt compelled to preach the gospel. He says, I'm telling you, Paul, because of necessity, you are going to go to Rome. You are going to make that trip. You are going to preach the gospel. You are going to. Some would say hallelujah. That had been Paul's dream. In Romans 1.15, he wrote the book of Romans while he was in Corinth. He, man, this is, he wrote the book of Romans before he ever went to Rome. And he says in Romans 1.15, so as much as in me is, he says, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. And it's just a heartbeat of Paul. He says also in Romans 15 and verse 23, now having no more place in these parts, he says, having a great desire these many years to come unto you. You see, this wasn't just an on the whim idea that Paul had. This was something that he went to bed with. This is something that he dreamed about. This was something that whenever the opportunity and the door was open, he was going to make the go for it. This is, this is a burden. This is a desire that was upon us for many years. This had been upon him. <laughs> and here's the amazing thing. When you think about it. So Paul's compelled to preach. Woe is him if he does not preach. Necessity is laid upon him. He feels like, brother, brother Alex, he feels like this is his purpose. You know what God does in that moment when he visits him in Jerusalem? You know what God does? Paul's feeling like this is his purpose. God steps down in there, speaks to Paul and steps back. And you know what he basically says? He says amen to what Paul was feeling like his purpose was. He said, you must go. Woo! Man, there's nothing better whenever you feel an inclination toward what God wants you to do. And God just steps back and says, amen, so be it. Hallelujah. I'm thankful tonight for the times God has stepped down in my life whenever I was second guessing and I was wondering and I was troubled. And he said, pastor, amen. What's he saying? He's saying what you're feeling in your spirit, what you're feeling in your heart, that desire, that unction. He says, go with it, go with it. Your purpose is my purpose. Amen. Oh, yes. Amen. And so the message that is, that is framed right here in verse number 11 is for every soul, every child of God here tonight. And what that means is this. Wherever you are, you do not need to underestimate what you have done. Paul was wondering about his time there in Jerusalem. God basically said, Paul, don't be underestimating what you've done here. And number two, Paul, you're not finished yet. I'm going to open up a door for you to walk through. And I'm going to get you to where you have purposed to be. Yeah. We need those times. In 1 Kings 19, God is telling through the story, he's telling every Elijah that found themselves despondent in a cave of isolation because they just had a great victory, but they met their valley. Sitting in every cave of isolation, he's telling every Elijah, get out of your cave, go forward and grab some anointing oil because there's still some kings and prophets you need to anoint. Because at that stage in Elijah's life, in 1 Kings 19, he felt like his ministry, his life, should and ought to be finished. Should and ought to be over. Amen. But the Spirit of the Lord came and said, it's not finished, Elijah. 
There's still a few heads you need to anoint. In 1 Samuel 16, he was telling every Samuel to grab his horn and fill it up again one more time because there was a final person that he needed to anoint that was going to supersede every other head and any other thing he had ever anointed in his life. Because here was, here was Samuel at that point in time. Saul seemingly has failed. And Saul's failure, Samuel took as his own failure. Saul's failure, Samuel took for his own failure. And he thought, you know what? The last person that I anointed, amen, seemed to be a mistake. The last person that I anointed, it seemed to turn out a failure. But God stepped in that moment and convinced Samuel. Samuel, whatever happened with Saul, that was what was supposed to be. But I got another head waiting on you. I got another head waiting on you that's waiting for some oil. You are not finished yet. Oh, yes. You got to walk out of this place tonight with the mind frame and the determination that what you have done has not been in vain and you personally are not finished yet concerning your work for the Lord here upon this earth or here within this church. You need to stop accepting the lies and accepting the deceit that anything I've done to this moment of time, it's been useless. I'm not really added anything to the church. I don't even know why I go there because me being there really doesn't add anything. I'm here to rebuke every lie of deceit in the name of Jesus and say, God, come down where they are right now and tell them it's not been in vain. It's not been useless. It's not being overlooked and you still got some other things for them. Their story is not finished. It's just another chapter that's being written. I know I'm a little fired up here on a Wednesday. Let me tell you, it got cold outside and it's warming up, so I'm hot. And so once again, unbeknown to Paul, This word of encouragement, instruction, guidance comes before a plot is revealed for killing him. The plot's real. It's real. Forty Jews are conspiring together to take neither food nor drink until they've completed the mission of killing Paul. The plot was real. But Paul understood The words that God spoke to me before I learned about the plot, they're real too. They are just as real. And so here are, and it's going to be story time here just for a little bit because I don't have just some just profound truths to pluck out of here, but the storyline is important. So there are 40 Jews that gathered together and conspired to kill Paul. And for one, folks, for one, consider, this is really quite amazing. Because a group of people enter into a pact with one another to take no food, no drink. They have decided to fast both food and drink until Paul was killed. Now fasting, fasting, normally normally something that people did when they wanted to get dead serious with God about something. All right? You know, it's kind of like, I really mean it, Lord, you know, type thing. For instance, David in the Old Testament, after his sin with Bathsheba, Bathsheba, there was a child born out of that, out of that sin. It grew sick. The Bible says as long as the child was alive in its sickness that David fasted. 
take no food, no drink. He, he fasted if perchance the Lord would change his mind concerning taking that child by sickness. The Lord did take the child. Whenever that was said and done, he quit fasting. They were, some of the people were kind of puzzled about that, but he told them, he said, I was doing this because as long as the child was alive, I thought perhaps the Lord would change his mind. But now, he says, he'll not be able to come to me. I'll have to go to him. Amen. That's what he said. But he was fasting because he was getting serious with God about something. Jehoshaphat in the Old Testament, there were some invading armies that were coming into the land. They had, they had already lost in battle a couple of times. And he understood, son, we got we to gotta raise the ante around here. So he, he called to Judah. And he called to those of his brethren and he proclaimed the fast for them. And he proclaimed the fast for himself because he thought maybe through fasting he would seek out the favor of the Lord and get victory then against the invading army. He was doing this to somehow get serious, if you will, with God. The city of Nineveh and Jonah. Remember he calls them that you all need to go to repentance. What do they do? They start throwing on sackcloth. They're repenting, and the king of Nineveh says, we're fasting. Everybody's going to fast. As a matter of fact, your lambs and cattle are going to fast. Man, it get, you want to talk about calling the household to the fast. It gets serious whenever you call your dogs and cats to fast. <laughs> Little flu flu's going to have to wait seven days. <laughs> and there ain't no crumbs falling from the table because you're not eating either. And they're getting serious. They're getting serious because they thought maybe perhaps God would change it. And God did. God changed his mind and decided that he would not destroy them. So look at me now. It's evident then if these people, these Jews that are conspiring against Paul, these Jews who a few lessons ago we identified that they were in a position where Paul had been somewhere in his past. Right? These Jews, it's evident then that they're thinking they are doing right by their fasting. They're thinking by fasting, getting serious with God about this episode. They think they're doing right in what they're trying to do, get Paul out of the picture. So they think he is a low-down, low-down false teacher. And so they think they're doing God's will in this fast. And it's in this episode in other places, but it's in this episode that Jesus' own words about what would take place in the future was coming about of John 16 too. He had told his disciples, he says, they shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. For one, they, they got into that fast because they thought they were doing the will of God when in reality, they were not but these were 40 people that joined. They said, now, folks, I, we don't read anything else concerning the story. But as we get into it, Paul escapes. He never dies by their hands. I don't know if they continued their days of fasting. I don't know. I don't know if they're all there with their tongues hanging out their mouth or what. But we don't hear about that side of the story. I'd like to know that, though. God, someday, just give us a little picture, will you, of what happened to those 40 guys. How desperate were they, really? So, so this all happens. Now, when they get this in their mind, this is the storyline. This is the storyline. So these 40 Jews, they come together to the chief priests and the elders. They tell them the plan. Here's what we need you to do. We need you to tell the chief captain, the Roman chief captain, we need you to tell him that you want to question Paul again. 
and have him brought from the palace again. And before he ever reaches you all, we're going to snuff him out. We're going to kill him before he ever gets there. But that, that, we need your involvement in this because that's the only way he's going to be exposed where we can get him. And so as they're saying this whole plan, man, this is, just, this is just the hand of God. I don't know how else to say it's the hand of God. In this whole plan then, Paul's nephew, this is the only time we ever hear of the boy. Paul's nephew overhears the plan of these 40 Jews and the elders and the chief priests. And when he, he hears about it, he goes and tells Paul. He goes and tells Paul there in the castle. Paul then calls over a centurion and says, you need to take this young man here to the chief captain of the Romans. Tell him about this scheme. The chief captain, now this is, I'm running through verses right here. The chief captain, verses 12 through 22, if you really want to know. The chief captain takes the boy aside, and he then relays everything that was the plan, everything that was the scheme, amen, to the chief captain in privacy. And so it's at that point in time the chief captain dismisses Paul's nephew and says, son, I don't want you to tell anyone else. There's the miracle of Acts 23. Somebody keeping their mouth shut. That same news got to some people. Paul's dead as we're standing here now. I'm telling you right now. Whew. Nevertheless. Verses 23 through 24. 23 through 24. Is another crisis that's averted. So we've had the crisis with Paul before the Sanhedrin averted. We've had Paul's own crisis with himself averted by the Lord. And now we're having this conspiracy. This, these 40 that's lying and laying in wait. For the apostle Paul to kill him, it's going to be averted. Where the chief captain gets word about this scheme, he calls, the Bible says, and I'm just walking through the, walking through the Bible story here. The chief captain calls two centurions to make ready for a trip to go to, to, to Caesarea, to Caesarea, to Felix. Going to take him there. He says, I want you to get 200 soldiers, and I want you to get 70 horsemen, and I want you to get 200 spearmen. You want to talk about quite an honorage for one little old Apostle Paul. 470 people. Man, when God, when God says he's going to get you to Rome, he's doing it in style, son. I'm telling you right now. He has all this protection. Now, that's quite an entourage. I understand. But we got to also remember, Jerusalem right now is in uproar. The Jews, particularly, of Jerusalem are in uproar. And a good, vast, vast uh, distance from Jerusalem, there is this mix of Jew and Gentile. And news travels so fast that somebody can know you stubbed your toe before you arrived at the party. You understand what I'm talking about? <laughs> Sister Rhonda said, yes, yeah, she understands what I'm talking about. Amen. So what I'm saying is, there's quite an underage because we still have these Jews. Word travels fast. And so it was safest. For Paul to have all of these men, these soldiers, these spearmen, these horsemen that's, that's taken him. And it seems, according to the scripture, that the soldiers and the spearmen seem to accompany the whole group all the way from Jerusalem to Antipatrius, which was a 37-mile journey. It wasn't all the way to Caesarea, but it was part of the way. But when they got that far, far the dynamics were changing. It wasn't so much a mixed Jew-Gentile thing. It was mostly a Gentile type of, of setting. So he sent the spearmen and the soldiers on home. And then it was only the 70 horsemen that led Paul the rest of the way from Antipatrius to Caesarea, which was 27 miles, all right? And so they're able to go a little further. Not only that, I want you to look at this. Verse number 24, not only were there soldiers and spearmen and horsemen, but the chief captain of the Roman guard says, you get Paul a beast and put him on. 
Paul has done most of his three missionary journeys either in a ship or by foot. (laughs) And now that he's in prison, God set up that he could not walk but ride a beast on the way to Caesarea. Honey, we got to look twice sometimes some of these predicaments we find ourselves in that is woe is me. We don't know what God is doing. (laughs) Paul says, I... I'm telling you right now, I remember walking almost 60 miles on foot. This is kind of nice. All these people around me got my own beast I can ride on. Amen. Man, God, he does it. He does it right. And then they make it to, they make it to Caesarea. But before they ever go, the chief captain, Claudius, writes a letter, as they commonly would, writes a letter to Felix. Now, this, for me, this is, this is a little funny. Okay. This is funny to me. It might not be to anybody else but I'll smile. Look at verse 27 in his writing to Felix. Now he's got it was important for them to write to whoever they were sending the person, write to them what the accusations were, what the crime was done. Well, this captain's grabbing for straws because he's not really learned any of that yet. So what do you say when you don't have anything to say? And so he writes to him look at verse 27. He's writing to Felix. This man, speaking of Paul was taken of the Jews and should have been killed of them. Then came I with an army and rescued him, having understood he was a Roman. Now, Chief Captain put a little feather in his hat, okay? Because the real story we've already studied is this, is that there was a grand riot that was taking place in Jerusalem. As a result of that, the Chief Captain did go and rescue Paul because the Romans didn't think too kindly on riots that took place that they didn't have no idea why they were taking place. And the man in charge was always held accountable. So he did that for himself. But what is great is that he said, I did all this because I understood he was a Roman. Son, he is really balking this story up because he only understood he was a Roman after he already had him bound and even bound to a stake, almost ready to lay the whip, the scourge on his back. It's then that Paul said, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. And he's like, "Uh uh-oh. But he makes it sound like I came to Paul's rescue because I knew he was one of us. That's funny to me. That's funny. He, he's, he don't have nothing to say, so he's just going to make up a little bit of it, and he's going to try to color himself in a positive direction, you know, for Felix, and that he, he kind, he smiled very kindly, you know, up on Paul. Amen. But that, that's not the case whatsoever. But, I'm, I'm, I'm landing the plane, but whenever he finally arrived, Paul finally arrived there, Felix goes through some of the the, the process, the protocol. He has to ask him where Paul is from, and Paul tells him, and so Felix understands then that Paul is in his jurisdiction, so he can be tried by him. And he he basically tells him, he says, I'm going to try you. I will hear you. And he says, I'll hear you. You understand with me. I'll hear you when your accusers get here I'll hear you when your accusers are also come because Roman law and I think this would be good for us today to adopt in our personal lives Roman law accusations had to be made in the presence of the accused I could tie Sunday morning and Wednesday night and all this in a big ball of wax. 
accusations had to be made in the presence of the supposed accused. I dare to say today, most of the time, accusations are made when the supposed accused is not present. And that's what brings division. And that's what tears down the house. If we could accuse in the presence of the accused, I dare to say there would even be fewer accusations ever made. But since I can say it through Facebook, Well, they're my friend. They know. Oh, yeah. That there's one thing doing it on the phone. There's one thing doing digitally. And there's a whole nother thing when they're standing in front of you. Somehow we assume the role of being invincible. And that we're truly the only one there. Whenever our fingers are going on our phones and on our keyboards. And we have the freedom to say whatever. Post whatever we want. Because we are totally convinced in our brains that since we're alone in that moment, we are alone. Well, that's for another Bible lesson of another day, I guess. But the accusations had to be made in the presence of the accused. And so once again, I got a cliffhanger. Here's Paul. He's in Caesarea. He's here with Felix. And he's going to be tried here before we know it, before Felix But if there's things that you need to understand tonight in these crises that have been averted, remember, division tears down any house. I don't care what the context context is, tears down any house. Number two, you need to remember that what you've done is not in vain, and where you are is not the definition of where God's going to take you. And lastly, lastly, You need to, whatever it is that you're doing, praying, fasting, whatever, you need to ask yourself real, real, real closely, what is the real cause for me doing what I'm doing? Because you might think you'd be doing the will of God, but you're doing it for the wrong purpose. Amen. So we need to avert these things. I've spoke long enough. I sweated the whole nine yards. I feel like I didn't in church. Hallelujah. Let's bow our heads. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.